Thank you, Denise. She, Denise, great announcements, the women's retreat, prayer, I love that. Will, that prayer moves from a discipline to a delight, doesn't it? When we, um, when we see it and with completely different eyes. She also, um, there was one other announcement she forgot, it's the Super Bowl. But, you know, hey, it's all right. There's another one next year, as Bart Starr once said, he was being interviewed about the most important game that's been ever played is the Super Bowl. It's in, uh, actually, uh, Harold Kushner wrote a book called uh, When uh, Everything You Wanted Isn't Enough. It's a commentary on the life of Elijah. And he, inter- so he, he mentions that there was an interview with Bart Starr, and he was asked about this greatest game ever played in the whole world. And he said, if it's such a great game, why is there another one next year? So kind of, again, I, no response. The beach had no response. You got to really think about that really hard. Either that or I just stepped on a lot of toes. Like, oh, the Super Bowl is the most important thing. Um, I'm not watching it this year. I'm actually going to watch it next year. Because um, there's going to be another one next year. We're back in our series, 1 Kings, chapter 17, verse 9, two, chapter 19. Three chapters in the Old Testament. And in these three chapters, we have the story of Elijah, the prophet of God in the 9th century BC, who confronts Ahab because the country had turned to a synchronistic, religious, spiritual perspective. They worshiped their God and they worshiped other gods. And that's called synchronism. And God wants to be worshipped. And the nation had now kind of incorporated worship of other gods. And we might think, well, what's wrong with that? Aren't all gods the same? But God has a different perspective on this. And so he brought Elijah, Elijah into the scene as a prophet to speak on behalf of God and said, there will not be rain for three years. And during that time, I want you as a nation to reconsider your loyalty to me. And now the rain is coming back. The time of contemplation has ended. And in 1 Kings, I want to read this section of scripture. This is the moment, the climactic moment in the story of Elijah. It's the story of victory. It's Mount Carmel. And this, it all comes together at this point, and I have a whole new perspective on it in just, just kind of thinking about this over the last couple of days. So let's read this passage, and I'm actually reading it from a very dramatic uh, section uh, or, or translation, the new, the new Living Translation. And so Elijah appears before Ahab, and Ahab sees him, and calls him the troubler of Israel. There you are. You're the one who caused the drought. You're the problem. We don't have rain. We're suffering as a nation because of you. Elijah turns to him and says, I'm not the troubler. I'm actually not the one. You are the troubler. You're the one because you have refused to obey the commandments of the Lord, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18, and have worshiped the images of Baal instead. So Elijah says, it's time to decide. The time of decision has come. And the next, very next verse, it says, Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 
prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. Basically, essentially, the nation of Israel, or many, have come to see this big showdown with these prophets of another god. Baal is simply a term used in the Old Testament for God, a deity. It could be any kind of a deity. Baal, there were various Baals, Baals of Baal of fertility, and in this particular case, in 9th century BC, Baal was the god of rain, the storm god, that brought rain to the earth to bring the grounds to the ground so that it might be fruitful. They needed rain, so they prayed to a god of the rain. And that's Baal. And there were these prophets that would go out in the land. They were influencers in the nation. And they would influence the people to bring worship to this God, appease this God, so that there would be rain. And the nation incorporated this belief in this false deity with their relationship with God and continue to worship both side by side. And so Elijah calls the people on Mount Carmel, about 6,000 meters high, sits on kind of the coast of the Mediterranean that divides Israel, this, this Mount Carmel stands up and kind of divides Israel from the Phoenician um, towns uh, along the coast. And so you have this division between the worshipers of Baal and supposedly the worshipers of God. And here is this mountain, and he calls the prophets up, and he calls the people up, and Ahab comes up, and Elijah goes up, and there's going to be a big showdown. And we'll now see what happens. This great victory. And so, here we go. So they all come together. Ahab summons all the people of Israel and all the prophets to Mount Carmel. And Elijah stands in front of him and says, in terms of the people, says, it's time to make a decision. 1821, very important scripture. How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? The idea is that you are, you're, you're, you're not sure-footed. You're, you're back and forth. You're in one camp, then you're in the other camp, and you're a very unstable person because you can't make a decision in terms of who is really your God and who you worship and who you're loyal to. It creates instability in your life. And so he says, if the Lord is God, know him, follow him. But if it's Baal and Baal's God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent, like it is time. We have to make a decision. So Elijah says to them, I'm the only prophet. And so what I want to do is you see me and you see the 450 prophets of Baal. And I'm, we're going to have a contest. And what we're going to do is have these two bulls. And the prophet of Baal may choose whichever one they wish to cut in pieces, lay it on a wood altar without setting it afire. I will prepare an other bull and lay it on wood in the altar, and I won't set it on fire. Then call on your God, the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire of the wood is the true God. All the people agreed. Okay? So contest is set, two altars. See, back in the ancient Near East, people worshipped a god. They worshipped somebody. There weren't any atheists. People worshipped deities as part of their lifestyle. The question is, which one's real? Which one really has the ability 
to bring fire from heaven to light an altar of wood and consume the sacrifice. And all these ancient Near East cultures had this concept of sacrifice. So they would sacrifice something on behalf of themselves to appease their God, to get their God to do what they wanted them to do. And so it was very common, very normal, so they all understood what was going about to happen. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first. There are many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, and call in the name of your God. But don't set fire to it. Allow your God to set fire to the altar. So they prepared the bulls, verse 26. Then they called out the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, oh, Baal, answer us. There was no reply of any kind. So they started dancing, hobbling around the altar. So they, they, they started, it, it, said, it describes them as kind of in, almost in a frantic way, dancing, trying to appease and trying to stir up this God to bring a fire down to light the altar to make a point. About noontime, Elijah begins mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a God. Perhaps he's daydreaming, or maybe he's even relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip, or he's asleep, or needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder, and according to their normal custom, they began to cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. There's no sound, no response. Elijah calls the people and says, come over here. The crowd comes around. He takes the 12 stones, builds an altar. These are the 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's promise. Then he digs a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons of water. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bowl into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood, filled the large jars, pour the water all over the offering in the wood, and then they said, do it again. So they did the same thing, and then they finished. He said, do it a third time. So they did it, and as the water ran around the altar to even fill the trench. The usual time of offering in the evening, Elijah prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God of Israel, that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer. Answer me so these people will know that, O Lord, our God is the true God. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It licked up all the water in the trench, and when the people saw it, they fell on their face, and they found themselves crying out to the Lord, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Victory is accomplished. The contest, the showdown, the sacrifice, it all looks really good. The prophets of Baal then, he says, come together, and he calls the Baal prophets together. He says, don't let anybody leave. And there, down in the Kishon Valley, he slays all the prophets. It seems like a great victory. Now, in modern culture, we have a lot of problems with this passage. First of all, Elijah is killing 850 people. 
So he pulls out his sword and kills 850 individuals. And we just kind of go, what in the world is going on in this passage? Because that doesn't really jive with our culture today and our understanding of a compassionate, caring, loving God. How do we deal with passages like this in the Old Testament that seem very drastic and very extreme and very intolerant of other people? And yet there's something going on here that's much deeper. First of all, we have to understand the nation had three and a half years to turn their hearts back to God. Three and a half years without rain, they recognized the fact that there is one God that controls the rain, and it's not their God. This is the story of Nineveh. I mean, this is the story of Jonah bringing the gospel, bringing the message of, of true faith in God to a nation that did not believe in that. And they had the opportunity to turn, to turn their, their, Lord, their, their hearts back to the Lord. And we see that over and over in Scripture. God is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger, slow to wrath. And yet extreme things need to happen, extreme measures in extreme times. And it was time to decide. And those that were influencing the nation had an opportunity, and God said, enough is enough. And that was the end. And we often think and look at this passage and go, well, gosh, this looks like a great victory. Okay, we understand this was an extreme situation. We're glad we're in the New Testament now where there's grace and compassion and prophets today and pastors don't slay people that don't believe in the living God, but they believe in a false God or somebody else. Um, we have a far more capacity for grace and forgiveness, and we just, we're not called to do that anymore. Mount Carmel, it's interesting, seems like a great success. It ends everything. The, the prophets are slayed. The, the influencers are gone. The message is now, people have turned back to the Lord, and everything looks good. And hap, they live happily ever after, right? I mean, from this day forward, in the Old Testament, everything gets turned, and it all looks good, and everybody turns their hearts back to God, right? Doesn't happen. I woke up the other night about 12.30, couldn't sleep, so I got up finally at 2, and I began reading through First and Second Kings, thinking that that would put me back to sleep. <laughs> and it didn't. And what I discovered in my readings through First and Second Kings is how often the people turned their hearts away from God and worshipped other gods. It just kept happening. First Kings actually closes with the death of Ahab, and the people turned their hearts back to Baal worship. They turned their hearts back to idolatry. And we actually see in 43 and 44 that they did not stop worshiping other gods. In fact, Ahab dies, and Azaziah is his son who takes over, and he again institutes Baal worship. Starts all over again. First, Second Kings chapter 10, the king of Israel is Jehu. And guess what he does? He has to slay the prophets of Baal all over again. Second Kings chapter 10, there's a second slain. They have to eliminate the prophets all over again in order to bring about whole worship to the Lord in the nation. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 14, it says that the people stiffened their necks against the Lord. And 2 Kings ends with Nebuchadnezzar marching into Jerusalem 
and Israel is destroyed. And it begins the exile. The people turn back. And it got me thinking. Mount Carmel was not as successful as we think it is. That victory seemed really complete, but it wasn't. And I think there's another point behind it. I think we have to look at this passage not from the perspective that what God is teaching us is that we need to take our idols and slay them and then turn our hearts back to worship and everything's going to be great. But there's something else going on deeper in this passage of scripture. And there's two things I want to point out to you this morning. The first thing that I want to point out to you is that there is a contest, a showdown. And the second thing is there's a sacrifice. And the first thing that we see is the showdown is, yes, absolutely, Elijah twice in 1821 and 1839, it's time to make a decision. And sure enough, they make the decision and they fall on their faces in 1839. From 21 to 39, they have made their decision and they have slayed their idols. An idol, by the way, is anything in your life that is good that has become ultimate. Anything in your life that you have given greatest value to over God. And and that's idolatry. Idolatry is simply the worship of anything. We we, we know in, in Exodus chapter 20, by the way, if you turn to Exodus 20, the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is what? She'll have no other idols besides, no other idols. I am, the, I am the only one you are to worship, purely and holy. And it even describes that in Exodus chapter 20. He has a description of that particular commandment. And the other ones, there's no description. There's just a statement. But in this particular case, there's several verses that describe why it is that we are not to have any idols in our life or images that we worship other than God. And so the people of Israel knew that. And yet what we discover is their hearts were turned back to idolatry as soon as this was over. But there was a showdown. And I think what this indicates is that as I was thinking about this, sure, there were people that turned their hearts back to the Lord. There's no question Many of the people that fell on their faces before the Lord gave their hearts back to the Lord, and they handed up over and gave back their idols. They gave them. They gave them up. And I think there's a there's a there's a learning in here. Many of them did, but many of them didn't. And and one generation to another generation, there's a whole other set of idol idols. And I think we today are facing a culture of idols. We've talked about this before, but here it is. They're confronted in this passage. There's a great showdown. And, and, and our idols need to be challenged. And we see this great challenge here that there's two altars. And the, the, the fire that comes down either from the God of Baal or the God of, of Jehovah God, the creator God, the God of Israel will consume the altar, will determine whether it's a real God or not. But I want you to see something within here. In this showdown, notice how either Baal or God is actually appeased or called upon to bring fire. Do you see the difference? 
They danced around, it said. They shouted louder. They, they, they were hobbling around, and then they began to cut themselves. So there's something in this about our idols. And whatever your idol might be, I don't know what your idol is, but the, the implication is that we all have something buried within us that we desire. And these are good things. These are things that God has given us. Um, um, Richard Foster called it out many, many years ago. Our culture idol, idolizes money, sex, and power. Those are the things in our culture that we value. Those are, but, but you have to understand, those three things, possessions, full, sexual fulfillment within the context of marriage, and, and value and importance, whether it's power or fame, we value those things. Those are good things. God brings us value. God brings us fulfillment. God is the one who gives us all pleasures and delights and possessions. Those come from the hand of God. Those aren't bad things, but they're not ultimate things. And when they become ultimate things, they turn our hearts away from God. We understand that. But the interesting thing about this passage is what these idols in our life make us do. The reason why we know they're not good for us is notice their behavior. They danced around frantically trying to appease their God, trying to appease their idol. So in other words, there's this dancing, there's this activity, there's this, there's this need to appease on the, their God by doing something. I, I got to dance around. I got to, I got to, I got to make it happy. I got to work hard. I got to be frantic about my behavior, guarding it, keeping it close inside to the point where if it's not going to be appeased, I now begin this process of self-mutilation, cutting myself, myself, uh, hurting myself. And I think the way in which we tell whether something is an idol or not is, the, is, is what is it doing to our hearts and our lives? Is, there, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it bringing about a level of destruction, harm into our lives? I mean, you can, you can look at anything. I, I, let me just say, I, you know, I can point out a lot of things. It could be a relationship. It could be what you own. It could be um, your children. It could be your religious practices. I mean, a lot of us come back, come from various religious disciplines and religions, and we come into the Christian faith through various religious organizations. And those practices and those ways of belief have been so ingrained in us we get to a point where we say, this is the only way. And this is how we honor and serve and worship God. And this system of belief or this structure or these practices, if they're not implemented, then I don't have a relationship with God. Or if I don't have this thing or that I want or desire or need then I'm not going to have this relationship with God. Something else gets in the way. 
And God calls us through a showdown of evaluating those idols in our life. Does it all the time. I have an illustration. Um, many, many years ago when I was in college, there was a relationship. And it was a great relationship. It was a wonderful, wonderful person. Great gal. It wasn't a bad relationship. It just wasn't the best relationship. And I had to come to understand that. And so I had one of these showdowns with God. So I brought it before the Lord. I remember where I was in college. And I was standing on a bridge over Strawberry Creek on the Cal campus, Cal Berkeley. And it was about 8.30 at night, finished studying. And I said, Lord, I will give you anything not to give up this relationship. What do you want? And I had this try to bargain with the Lord. And he said, I don't want anything from you. But I have something better for you. You have to make a decision. You can have this relationship. It's, and it's not like it was a bad relationship. It's just, it wasn't, we weren't on the same spiritual page. We had different core beliefs about Christian beliefs and, 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 and our, our, our Christian, our understanding of the Bible and salvation and all, all the basics. And it was really apparent and God knew that I would meet somebody else that would align with, with what I believe the New Testament is teaching us about the core understanding of Christianity because we would one day end up together in ministry. The Lord knew that. He had a plan and a direction, and I had no idea. And here I am as a college student saying, what I really want is this relationship because I, there was a level of of idolatry in my heart because I wanted the relationship more than I wanted to be in relationship. And when I met my wife, Denise, it was about being in relationship, not about the relationship. Does that make sense? I wasn't worshiping the relationship. I was focused on being in the relationship. God was in it. It was totally different. And I think there's a showdown often, and I wanted to dance. I was willing to mutilate myself. I was willing to cut myself. What do you want? You want all my money? You want, I didn't have any at the time anyway, but what do you want from me, Lord? And I have this, we do that, don't we? We just bargain with the Lord because we still want a relationship with God, but then we hold on to these idols, and the Lord is calling us to the showdown saying, the real fire comes from heaven. And there's an opportunity here for you to give up this for something better. And you can pick out anything in your life that holds that great a value and worth. And there's the showdown. And, and we know, we know when we're in one of those things because ultimately what happens, it becomes destructive in our lives. It can either go into addiction. Let me give you an example. Advertising is all about sex appeal, isn't it? It's always been that way. So the, the image is of a beautiful female body or a beautiful male body, and it sells something because we look at that and we desire that, and then we align it with this and want to buy that. But secretly what happens is that 
from a woman's perspective, they look at this beautiful body and this image and we look at it and we say, well, that's, that's the only way to be in order to be affirmed by a man or society or culture. And I will do anything in order to be approved, so I will dance and I will cut myself and I will do whatever it takes because that's of greatest value because that's been held before us as a great idol in our culture. From a man's perspective, he looks at this beautiful body and this picture of idealism and says, that's reality when that's not reality. And I will do whatever it takes to have what's not real become real. And that becomes an idol, right? Doesn't that make sense? That's what we do. We do that with money. We do that with sex. We do that with power. We do that with relationships. We do that with belief systems. We guard our belief systems, whether it's a religious practice of some sort or whatever. We, we, are, we want to incorporate that in, and we hold on to that so tight. And the Lord is saying, there's only one place the fire is going to come down from, from the heavens, and it's from me. There's only one thing, and it leads us to our second point, and I think this is the point of the passage. It's not about the victory over our idols. Yeah, it's a good process. Believe me, don't get me wrong. That's a good process to lay those things. What are you, what are you idolizing most in your life? I gotta be in a relationship. I, I don't have a relationship. Or I'm, I'm, I want another relationship or whatever it is or I don't have enough. That's a good process. And it's a good come to Jesus moment and we find it right here in the text. But that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is my second point which is it's a sacrifice. It's the sacrifice. God is the one who brings fire down from heaven and sacrifices the altar and it burns up the altar. It's that sacrifice. And that sacrifice is something that Jews practice in the nation of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. So they would take a bowl, they'd put it on the wood, and they would light, they would light it on fire, and, and it would be a, they would transfer their sins to the, to the animal, and the animal, as the blood flows out of the animal and is burned and consumed, God is essentially being appeased, and they would be in right relationship with God. And they would just keep doing that over and over and over again. And every time that they go back to sinning, which is quite often, they would have to sacrifice again. This passage of scripture is pointing to a future sacrifice. And what we see is the fire coming down is a symbol, is a representation, is a placeholder in all of history for something greater eight to 900 years later, which is not on Mount Carmel, but on Mount Calvary. And on Mount Calvary, Jesus will be the ultimate sacrifice for all times. We will continue to deal with our idols we will continue to love God and pursue God, and we will also continue to face our idols just as the nation did, and we'll go right through 1 Kings, right into 2 Kings, and we'll keep on doing that, and God knows that, and that's why he sent an ultimate sacrifice. 
because you and I will never be able to dance and mutilate, mutilate our bodies enough to appease the God that loves us so. And it took an ultimate sacrifice. And in this moment, they are not aware of the fact that 800 years later, Jesus will come. And when Jesus comes, he will go to the cross at Mount Calvary, another mountain, and the greatest victory of all will be accomplished so that you and I will be free finally from our idols. Ha! But wait. We continue to battle our idols. We all do. We all have secret idols. And I tell you, the best of people, I have known wonderful people, faithful people. They attend church. They worship the Lord. They serve in ministries. They preach from the pulpit. All sorts of people. Good, upstanding Christians. And all of a sudden, an idol appears in their life that was secretive. Maybe it was being held in abeyance. Who knows? But something within them, all of a sudden what happens is the idol takes over and off they go. And they wander off and you don't see them again and they're out of the church and now here they are in a whole nother realm and they've left their faith and they're gone and we just go, what is going on? How's that possible? Where is the sacrifice of Jesus? Why didn't that, this sacrifice accomplish it all in this moment? When Christ went to the cross, I thought it was good. It was done. Everything's accomplished. The idols are slayed. And yet, we find this over and over again in our experience. And then we come to a greater realization. The sacrifice of Christ was final, but it will be completed not until he comes back. And when Christ returns, it will be completed. The finality of the cross will become final. It will become completed, totally completed, when he returns. And until then, you and I need to learn and understand how to cling to the cross every day. That's why Paul says, I die daily. It's the good death. And we need to live a Christ-centered life every day. Because you and I will continue to battle our idols. But the reality of the cross is that God is a forgiving, gracious, loving God who loves us even when we go astray. And you take the best of a person and you put him in the worst of situation and off they go. And they, it looks like it's a bad scenario, and yet God still loves them. And the cross pursues them and continues to pursue them as he pursues us every day of our lives as we face our idols. And the message this morning is not that you have to work hard and dance and cut yourselves to slay those idols and work really hard to get God to light the altar and break the bonds. Jesus already did it, and he's doing it every day. And he will forgive you from your past, your present, and your future. And all the decisions in our lives, that's the reality of the cross. That's the reality of grace. And it's central in our lives. 
as we navigate this day forward until the day Christ comes back and gives us a new body. And we are no longer facing our idols. We have, they've been slayed completely and we've been transformed into the image of Christ in a resurrected state to live with him. But until that day, we understand that. And let me tell you kind of a practice as we close this morning. So the practice is this. The practice is learning how to take the cross deep within us. Remember I gave you the illustration of advertising and sex appeal. Essentially what you're doing with whatever it is that you value is that you take it within yourself. You receive it. You take it in. And it becomes part of who you are. And then you begin to act based upon what it is that comes in to the heart. So be careful. Guard over the heart because out of the heart flow the issues of life. In other words, out of the heart you live your life. So what you put into the heart, what you value, what you put in, what you see, what you desire will have an impact in how you live your life. As we do that, what we're now doing is we're transferring that same idea to the cross. And we're bringing the cross and the reality of the forgiveness of Christ, the reality of his grace that covers a multitude of sin over and over and over and over again. That Jesus is the one that danced around. Jesus is the one who was cut and his blood was shed. Not ours, but his. And he offers that and allows us to now be transformed from this day forward from the very idols of which had controlled us. And the more I take that in, the more I take in the reality of the cross. N.T. Wright wrote a great book um, called The Revolution, about the revolution. It's all about the crucifixion. The revolution begins here. And it's here. This is where the revolution begins. <clears throat> the true revolution begins at the cross because the power to live the Christian life began at the cross and was fulfilled in the resurrection and will be ultimately completed in his second return. But the more we receive that and understand it, guess what happens? The more it becomes part of it. We embody it. We take, and Paul says we, we carry on with the body of Christ, the dying, suffering body of Christ within us. We're simply, what he's simply saying is that we are just continually remembering the value and importance of the cross in our lives that continues to bring us back to the Lord. And even if we've stepped out of balance, even if we're holding these beliefs, don't mess with my beliefs, don't mess with these things. We, we get really angry when people start stepping on our toes. And yet, a lot of times we run away, but God just keeps pursuing us with the cross, bringing us back, bringing us back, bringing us back. He wants whole devotion, but he's not going to force us. He's going to woo us with his love. So when we read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, we often, like N.T. Wright says in his book on the revolution, he says, we often read it like it says, for God so hated the world that he killed his own son. I mean, that's what the crucifixion looks like in first century. It's a horrible thing. It's barbaric. People in certain cultures, certain social statuses wouldn't even talk about the cross. The crucifixion was so, so horrible, so below them. So degrading. It was for other people. It was for barbarians. 
non-Romans. And yet God used that. And it often looks like God really hated the world so much that he killed his own son. Unless, of course, he was doing something even greater. Unless he was taking something so barbaric as crucifixion. Unless he was taking this sacrifice, something as a, the ultimate sacrifice, and doing something even better. Demonstrating an even greater love. Where there is ugliness, there's wholeness and love. So, Father, as we, um, we go to the communion table, we really are going to the cross. And as we go to the cross, we are remembering the ultimate sacrifice as we look at Mount Carmel and look ahead to Mount Cal- Calvary. And this morning, we are... Um, We're encouraged in the context of our struggles of knowing ultimately, Father, that you have given us your son. And in giving us your son, you have given us the hope we need, the forgiveness, the grace, and the love. And where there is shame and there is guilt, where we feel we have to run or hide or whether we feel this sense of unworthiness, shame, it's replaced with love. You love us that much, and you keep pursuing us because of the cross. May we cling to the cross rather than run from it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we um, spend time worshiping and taking communion, just spend some time quietly before God. Have the showdown and just ask him, what what am I coming up against you with that is more important than you? And if you're like me, I kind of kick and scream about it sometimes because I can be stubborn. But have that showdown with him. And then like Todd said, um, invite him into that place. Invite him in and give him either the shame you feel, like Todd said, just embarrassment. Why do I do this again? I do this over and over again, God. I need you there. Or just power and a time of experiencing his love so that we can walk through it. So let's keep real quiet. Communion is different in the back today. We have the juice in the cup, and then we have bread separate, and then wafers that are gluten-free. So you can just grab the cup and the bread and um, have a showdown and invite them in. Why don't we just all stand and head back to the communion table? You can see it. There's three bowls. looks a little different. If you want to bring it back and um, take it in your own time as we go back into worship.
There may be some of us that um, have a hard time believing that Jesus loves us even as we worship our idols. He still loves us. He still wants our heart. And if you need prayer and you just need someone to come alongside you in believing that, just put up your hand and I know there's people that will want to pray with you. Lord, we remember the price that you paid, what you've done for us. On the night you were betrayed, you broke bread. So Lord, we remember the sacrifice that brings us close to you. So whenever you're ready, if you haven't, you can take the bread, you can drink. And as you're finishing, why don't you all stand as we worship together? Sing it together, walking around these walls. Walking around these walls I thought by now they'd fall But you have never failed me yet Waiting for change to Knowing the battle's won For you have never failed me yet Your promise still stands Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me. always been here you've always been so close be closer still Jesus faithful God sing it together I know the night won't last I know the night won't last your word will come to pass 
Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Your faithfulness I'm still in your hands This is my confidence You never fail me Jesus, we know that you do not fail us that you work all things together for our good. So Lord, in the places that we are coming to you as Denise even encouraged us, Lord, we come with confidence that you're good and that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. So Lord, we bow our hearts before you in adoration, in love and in thankfulness that you are who you say you are, that you don't stop, that you don't quit, you are always with us. So God, may that be the truth as we go into this week. May it be the truth that guides our hearts as we go to work, as we parent our kids, as we love our friends. God, let us stand on the truth of who you are. You are with us and you are good. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for worshiping with us. Um, just one quick reminder, if you see trash, just grab it. Um, help our setup team. But we'll see you next week. Bye, guys.